and welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal. And I'm Tracy Alloway. Tracy, so you know what a sort of depressing phenomenon has been lately? Uh, you're going to have to narrow that down, Joe. Yeah. Uh, right. There, <laughs> that's, that's a very broad category. A very micro depressing phenomenon uh, is that a lot of our recent episodes that we've done which we sort of discussed in a very theoretical sense, have unfortunately started to become relevant extremely quickly. Yeah, you're absolutely right. One of the ones that springs to mind is the one we did with Claudia Somm back in, I think it was January or February, about actually giving people money as a form of economic stimulus in order to stave off recession. And now we're sort of seeing that actually happen in the U.S., although obviously there are issues and a wider debate about the way that's currently being done. Yeah, absolutely. Another one, and I would say this episode that we're going to do uh, even more than any other, on Twitter, several times a week, people ask for updates of it. So there's one in particular where I'm always getting tweets. It's like, hey, what's going on with what you talked about that one episode? I'm curious if uh, you sort of have been getting the same one. Yeah, I absolutely have. I know exactly what episode you're talking about, and it was a really good one. It's Korean structured products. And not only have I been getting the same tweets with the same questions and people asking for a general update and what's going on with the structured products as well as the overall options market, but over in Asia, we've also been doing a few stories on it as well. And uh, it turns out there's quite a lot that's been happening with these. Right. So for those who don't remember, in uh, January, we recorded an episode about these Korean structured products popular with retail investors that were sort of premised on a, they're essentially, the payout was premised on a massive stock market crash not happening. And as everybody knows, we've gotten this market crash. And so everybody has been saying, what's going on with those Korean structured products when you're going to do a follow-up? So today we're going to do a follow-up. Great. I can't wait. Okay, so we uh, our guest back in January is the same guest we have today to do part two is uh, Ben Eifert. He's the CIO and founder of QVR Advisors. Uh, ben, how are you doing? Joe, Tracy, hey, I'm doing well, thanks. It's, uh, it's great to be back. So I, I'll, I'll preface this by saying that I think anyone listening to this episode should go back and listen to the first interview that we did with you back in the middle of January so that we don't have to do a complete refresher of the Korean structured products. But, but just sort of give us uh, the sort of the, the short version of the instruments that we were discussing and how their payout was linked to um, essentially stability in the market. Sure. So the very brief recap is, you know, there are large global structured product businesses you know, targeted primarily at retail and high net worth investors around the world, um, but very large in, in Korea in particular, also Japan to a somewhat lesser extent now. And the, the most popular types of products in the recent market environment that we've had for the last decade or so where interest rates are very low are essentially what are called you know, reverse convertible, auto-callable notes, which is a lot of words. But the idea is effectively you know, the retail investors looking to generate a coupon, so a fixed income uh, out of the equity market. 
And the way that you do that in this environment is you sell some kind of optionality, right? And so these notes typically, uh, the way they work is that the investor might get, let's say, a 5% or a 7% annual coupon, unless or until one or more of, what, you know, at least one of the underlying equity indices that the note is linked to is down by, let's say, 30% or 40% at some point during the life of the note. And in that eventuality, at the point where that happens, the note is, is triggered into a knockout state and the investor loses that, say, 30 or 40 percent of their investment. So the investor puts in $100, they're going to get 107 back unless the market's down. But if the market at some point is down, let's say, 40 percent in one in, let's call it the euro stocks or the Nikkei or the S&P, uh, then the investor is actually just going to take a 40 percent loss at that point. And that'll be crystallized. And then they'll have other features. Often they'll be callable on a, on, you know, a year out. So for example, if the underlying equity market is up 15%, they'll just get their coupon and then the note will be terminated early and probably reissued and maybe they'll do the same trade again. And so usually these notes are linked, uh, especially these days, you know, more recently with low, you know, low interest rates and low levels of equity volatility. You know, they embed all sorts of exciting optionality, like, as I alluded to, being linked not just to one equity index, but like the worst performing of a basket of four or five equity indices, for example. So we're talking about those knockout levels, those barrier levels, whatever you want to call them. And with the market sell-off that we've just seen, it would seem that some of those have hit the point at which investors will be experiencing losses to their principal. Uh, walk us through what you've seen in the market. Give us some color. How many of the structured products, you know, roughly are really hitting those knockout levels at the moment? Yeah. So there's, you know, there's a large stock of, of these types of products globally that, you know, turns over over some period of time. The, and you, you know, banks, do a good job of aggregating and publishing, um, you know, models of, of uh, what the overall space looks like. So we've seen, you know, a quick and quite large drawdown in, in equity markets globally. Now we're a bit off of the, you know, off of the lows, but the lows were, let's call it, you know, 30 plus percent down from, uh, from the highs in, in equity markets. So you did see, um, you know, globally, quite a lot, a large stock of these notes, you know, approaching the, those barriers where where the trigger a termination of the notes you did see you know some you know non-trivial percentage of of the outstanding stock of notes you know terminate uh, mostly not actually with respect to the S&P levels and the barriers uh, more more on the, the euro stocks and and some asian indices if you recall so the S&P has been down quite a lot but also the S&P in the you know call it 35% from the highs at you know a few uh, about a couple of weeks ago, but remember the S and P had rallied very aggressively up to the highs from you know late 2019, and the and these notes aren't linked like to the high point in the equity market. They're linked to the point at which they were issued, right? And so the S and P is is still a little bit off of off of uh, you know the the levels of where some of the S and P barriers are. But yeah, we've seen call it some you know low double digits percentage probably. Uh, of the note stock actually knock out. And then, you know, a large part of the note stock, obviously, on a probabilistic basis, become much closer to a knockout point. And as a result, of course, the investors who own those notes, if they were to look at their statements, uh, you know, would see a large mark-to-market loss. And of course, the the risk managers, you know, who, who manage structured product portfolios and hedge them at banks, 
face the the issue that many of those notes either have terminated, therefore losing their hedging, losing their long volatility characteristics from the bank's perspective, or are nearing termination, which uh, you know probabilistically reduces the you know the volatility component there. So you know, large drawdown in that market. So let's talk about the sort of risk management from the bank's perspective. And again, people should go back and listen to the original episode because we got a lot in the weeds about how the hedging consideration of the banks uh, changes. But uh, as the note gets closer to the knockout or the barrier, but talk to us about sort of like what we've seen. So we've seen volatility absolutely explode in the last few weeks. It's come down a little bit lately, but it's still very elevated. The S&P, even if it hasn't crashed as much as some indices is still down quite a bit. How much does uh, how much of a problem does this pose for the banks that have to hedge their exposure so they can either so that they're not on the hook? And what have they been doing to uh, to manage their risk? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll give their just really fast risk recap. Yeah. of the nature of this risk and then put it in the context of everything else that's going on. You know, these notes have a barrier option. Um, characteristic to them, uh, if you kind of know derivative speak, es- essentially the, the retail investors are selling what are called down and in knock in puts. In other words, they're a, a put option that really only that's binary in the sense that it, it only matters if you actually hit the barrier, and then it just triggers a binary event, right? And so the you know when banks issue these products, typically the the first proxy hedge of the risk is going to be that they sell some fairly deep out of the money, call it 30% out of the money, two or three year puts on the, on the underlying indices. And that'll be kind of just the first order um, proxy hedge for the type of risk that they have. <clears throat> now, as the markets start to go down, the combined hedged portfolio that a structured products book has will actually start to get somewhat longer volatility from the bank's perspective. And the reason uh, for that is, you know, barrier options are tricky. They have, they have, in some sense, they have a, a mo- much more pronounced profile of volatility exposure to the downside than any vanilla option does. And so the, the vanilla options that the banks sell, you know, in some sense, uh, the convexity that the banks have is that they get longer volatility for some, say, call it the first 10 or 15% of the move on the way down, but then as, those, as the market keeps falling and keeps falling down towards those barriers, then the net position that the banks have suddenly gets shorter very fast and then collapses when, as, as you hit the notes, uh, as you hit those trigger values. The reason being, you know, the, the notes themselves actually just terminate, right? And so all volatility exposure associated with the notes are gone, but the hedge was a vanilla option, which still exists and still has, you know, short volatility exposure from the bank's perspective. And so we're very much in that environment where where the banks um, have, you know, have started to see, you know, the their hedges you know the volat- the vega exposure the volatility on exposure on their hedges now kind of falling as the market goes down much slower than the, than their long exposure is falling um, and you know the rally alleviated that somewhat but you you do have to put that in the broader context of of everything else that's happening in the world in in equity derivatives portfolios of banks you know and there's and there's you know i have some insight here. Again, every bank, of course, is different and has different client flows and, and so forth. But 
Um, this, the key thing to understand is that this crisis uh, has developed and the equity market experienced a large drawdown at an extremely fast pace, right? So the credit crisis, of course, was, you know, a, a, a materially deeper market crisis across a variety of markets, uh, you know, in hindsight, relative to what we've seen so far. But it also was a relatively slow building crisis that took a while to manifest where there were, you know, many large legs down in, in asset values over a sustained period of time, right? Whereas here we saw um, just a truly epic sell-off over the course of, you know, three, four weeks. And so in the broader risk portfolios of banks, you know, contrary to maybe what some folks might expect, um, derivatives portfolios of banks have generally done very well in this environment. Uh, and, you know, they have not been exposed to large losses across their, across their business lines. And, and the reason for that is really the, you know, the, the banking industry and investment banks are very different in a 2019, 2020 Dodd-Frank world than they were back in 2008. Uh, in 2008, you know, bank, in bank prop desks and bank flow book, flow trading books were some of the largest risk takers in the world. They held some of the, you know, largest tail risk in the world across, you know, and they were, you know, they were, they were the world's largest hedge funds and they were holding, you know, carry trades and they were holding aggressive risk taking positions that lost the massive amounts of money. What we, you know, what we did with Dodd-Frank and steadily implemented, uh, you know, over the years and especially combined with Basel III, we dramatically de-risked the banks. We enforced extremely tight stress testing requirements on the banks with very, you know, proper, careful stress testing analytics. Uh, and we identified sources of tail risk in bank derivatives portfolios and told them to get rid of it. And banks have been very aggressive over the last five years, developing what we call, uh, what the banks called, you know, euphemistically alternative risk transfer programs, where they very explicitly had dedicated salespeople to go out and, you know, nice slide decks going out to hedge funds and going out to asset managers and um, proposing trades that those hedge funds and asset managers would do, you know, that was associated with potentially some positive carry. Uh, you know, so the idea was banks shouldn't be holding this stuff and banks were very well hedged, um, facing a lot of hedge funds and asset managers that have lost a tremendous amount of money during this crisis. So really those big, you know, the, the, the big losses, um, in derivatives portfolios were on the buy side, not the sell side this time. And at, partly as a result of, of how fast everything happened, you know, the, on that initial shock, the banks were actually pretty well covered, even though their auto call portfolios were getting pretty risky. So banks having de-risked uh, from post-financial crisis rules are relatively well insulated from the volatility and the market sell-off that we've seen. But as you point out, a lot of that tail risk has been pushed onto the buy side, onto hedge funds, other types of investors. Talk to us more about the alternative risk transfer trades. How do those actually work? And what are you observing now? Are we seeing some blow-ups in those? Sure. So I'll give you a couple of examples. So, and these, you know, uh, these get a, a bit, um, a bit wonky as is, uh, as is just the nature of, of the <laughs> business, okay. but I'll do my best to be there. <laughs> so 
Um, so for example, historically there have been some large sophisticated um, organizations that have liked to sell capped variants as a carry trade. Um, the, the, what, a, so a variant swap is a, a pure volatility position which uh, pays off the difference between implied variance and realized variance over the maturity of the trade, and variance being the square of volatility. And anytime you have squared terms in you know, the PL of something, it gets very exciting. So the, the reason that they, now what a capped variant swap is, um, a capped variant swap is one where you, if you are a said carry trader, you sell that variant swap, um, but you sell it subject to a cap of two and a half times the, uh, the actual level that you trade, where the most realized volatility that can possibly count in the payoff of the trade is two and a half times the initial level you sold, which is still quite high, but it gives you a finite stop loss where there is a maximum dollar amount you can lose on that trade and you know what that number is right you know so this was if you're going to be selling variants this is at least some somewhat of a prudent step right and the the org type of organizations that were you know engaged in this um you know were extremely large sophisticated pension funds <laughs> that um you know i'm not going to get into details but the size of those flows were quite large. Now, when banks facilitate that business, right, banks are buying capped variant swaps from these clients. And there's not really, there's not a liquid inter-dealer market for capped variant swaps because every, you know, the caps on the variant swaps are like options on variants and every one of them are at a different level, right? Because it's two and a half times the initial, you know, level where the market is trading variants. Um, so these are, you know, somewhat funny products. So when a bank actually buys capped variants from a client and then it goes to lay off the risk, what it's going to do is it's going to sell uncapped variants in the interdealer market or to another hedge fund. And what the bank is left with when it does that trade is a long position in capped variants and a short position in uncapped variants, which itself is just the bank being short a massively crashy piece of tail risk, right? Which is just this cap. So effectively, it's a call option on variance struck at you know two and a half times the initial level of, of variance, and that is exactly the kind of position that you know in two thousand and seven the bank would have just done that and said, hey, we're just gonna you know keep those and we're gonna get paid a lot of money in carry to keep those because and we like getting rich and getting bonuses and that's cool. Um, in you know, these days, uh, the banks cannot hang on to that kind of thing because you run a proper stress test and you immediately see that if the market goes down 50% and is very volatile, that you're going to lose an ungodly amount of money. And so what one of the earlier risk transfer trades within this alternative risk transfer universe was the banks going out to hedge funds and asset managers and trying to find people to take exactly that position. So they would, uh, would trade you know, short-term, one-month uh, capped variance versus uncapped variance, where the hedge fund sells the uncapped and buys the capped, and that trade and 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 pockets the difference between those two variance levels, which might be, you know, five years ago when this started, it might have been a vol point, so it might have been you know variant uncapped variance at sixteen and buying capped variance at fifteen. Uh, you know, by last year, this was, you know, very popular among hedge fund carry traders, and it might have only been 0.4 ballpoints, for example. And this is the kind of trade that, again, you just make money every month as long as volatility does not rise by more than two and a half times within the course of one month. 
right? And if you look back historically, as long as you don't include 1987, what you say is, oh, well, look, boss, um, even in the credit crisis, these trades didn't lose money because volatility increased a lot and it increased, you know, 10 times over the course of, you know, several months. But at, during no month did it rise more than two and a half times. Look, it only, you know, during Lehman, it only rose 2.4 times, right? So this is what they call backtest over-optimization, <laughs> right? Because, you know, it could have certainly just risen four times on Lehman instead of 2.4 times. Um, it just didn't. And, and this time, of course, it rose um, by a factor of, you know, closer to eight. And so if, so if you were to do this trade, again, the, the P&L is, is proportional to the square of the increase in volatility, right? So in March, if you had sold the February, you know, cap uncap trade, as a you know hedge fund engaging in alternative risk transfer, you collected you know 0.4 points and you ended up losing let's call it 250, right? And the uh, you know that so those positions alone were enough to you know wipe out uh, whole portfolio managers and hedge funds, and they're you know that that's one example, and I went into a decent amount of detail just because I wanted to make that clear, yeah. but there are. There are, you know, a dozen things like that or 20 things like that, some longer dated and more related to different kinds of, you know, esoteric implied risk factors, some that are more, but a lot of them related to gap risk, to kind of the sudden appearance of very high levels of realized volatility. And that's what, you know, that's what many, um, many folks were, you know, happily engaged in because it produced, you know, just a very consistent return stream that, you know, made a lot of people very rich for many years. So it's really just this extraordinary suddenness of the crash. Uh, it's not just that we had a crash. It's not just that we've had extraordinary volatility, but it's the speed of the volatility in such a short period of time that's been, that's obliterated so many positions. I'm curious, uh, sort of, this might be a silly question, but, you know, when we're talking about all these products, whether it's just the product sold to uh, the retail, uh, the retail client, uh, maybe in Korea, or some of these more uh, esoteric products that are sold by the dealers to the hedge funds or in the inter-dealer market. What is the, how do you track these? Because it doesn't seem like there's some like obvious like quote, you just look up and see where they're pricing. So when you're trying to get a sense of where the overall market is, or even like a sense of where the state of Korean structured note markets, or how many of them have been, uh, you know, knocked in, how do you like sort of get your hand around the size of this universe and the state of this universe? Sure. So let's start with the uh, you know Korean auto call market, for example. So this is the kind of thing where, you know, many of the large banks are you know heavily involved in this business. Uh, they most of them have very detailed research reports that they put out that aggregate you know everything that they know from a lot of this data is public because mm. these things go up for you know the the products themselves go up for you know for RFQ you know out of you know private banks and so forth, right? And mm. so the the dealers then you know, ingest all that data, they model the risk components of all these different products, and they'll and they'll publish that type of information. That's the kind of thing that, you know, it's it really, that is the source of the data. It's not the kind of thing that you can like go out and, you know, build right. your own database in some direct kind of way, because, um, you know, that you're talking about, you know, uh, many, many thousands of outstanding notes with all different characteristics and, and so forth. Um, on the 
on the, the ART side, again, it's, it's very much. So the way you know where new prices are trading in, in that stuff, of course, is that you're, you know, you're, you're a participant in these markets, right. possibly, probably not, you know, in our, in our case, not, you know, literally trading those products, but, but, you know, we are covered, you know, large, large institutional derivatives, um, you know, managers and, and traders are, are covered by the, um, the large investment bank uh, right, sales right. forces and speak with the traders and, and track all of these things very closely. Right. So what are the, you know, where are things pricing currently? What are the, how much has been trading, you know, where, what type of accounts, because it's the kind of thing that, you know, again, it's not something that I think uh, there's only a, a certain subset of people who were, would actually be selling this stuff. Um, but as a, as a derivatives investor, you need to know where the risks are in the marketplace. And so you have to understand, you know, who has these kind of positions and what the daisy chain effects could be. I have a sort of broader question, but a lot of what we're talking about here is this notion of risk having migrated from the banking system to the buy side. Is that vindication for regulators? Did they basically get this one right? Uh, should they be satisfied with the outcome that we've seen over the past few weeks, which is banks doing reasonably well on their derivatives portfolios, but some hedge funds and maybe some other investors uh, getting hit uh, on variant swaps and other volatility products. Was this the desired goal? It's a great question, Tracy. Um, I think very much um, there are two very much two sides to that, and the mm. regulators will will tell you exactly this, and you can read exactly this into their their actions over the last three four weeks, right? So on the one hand, from a systemic risk perspective within the banking system and resilience of the banking system to you know market shocks that might come from different unpredictable angles, this was a big win, right? Exactly as you said. Um, you know, in 2008, we were talking about what the next bank to go bankrupt was. There are people who talk about that sort of thing that, you know, read Zero Hedge. But uh, in general, actually, um, as we talked about, the banks are, are doing, you know, pretty, pretty reasonably, at least at this point. And, and that largely as a result of, you know, being very well hedged facing the buy side. The, and not and also not importantly, not holding, you know, large inventory, not trading aggressively. But the flip side of that is that, the you know extent of the market dislocations that we have seen uh you know is is certainly the catalyst has been you know the very large and very real fundamental economic shock of the sudden stop uh, you know across the global economy induced by by coronavirus right and that's really very real but the severity of some of the market dislocations the extent of you know some of the the daily moves in the equity market and in you know high yield and investment grade credit ETFs moving seven percent a day, this is not fundamental, right? This was this was the manifestation of markets under highly stressed circumstances where banks have stepped back from risk taking, right, and don't help and don't hold inventories and are not facilitating and intermediating markets. And that's the flip, the, the sort of the, the other side of the coin, right, where. Um, we've made the banking system a lot safer from uh, from market shocks by de-risking, by taking tail risk out, and by keeping inventories and, and risk taking out of the banking system. But at the same time, that's dramatically exacerbated the the dislocations that we see. And so, when you look at the many many actions that the Fed has been taking very aggressively, and not just the Fed, you know, global central banks, 
over the last three weeks to a month, you know, there's there's traditional monetary policy, lowering interest rates and so forth. But that's not really been the interesting stuff, right? The interesting stuff has been, um, you know, very aggressive expansion of of buying of different kinds of investment grade debt to try to stabilize broken markets, but then also, you know, incremental steady rolling back of many of the types of capital restrictions and uh, and general, you know, so so for example, you know, cutting uh, banks' need to hold capital and you know the and CCAR stress ratios, doing uh, you know a variety of things that look basically like rolling back many features of Dodd-Frank on a temporary basis, right? And the reason that they're doing that is, uh, is to get banks lending, you know, to make sure that banks keep lending to small businesses, to get banks involved taking risks and holding more inventory and stabilizing market conditions and fixing some of the crazy disruptions that we see, right? And I think the recognition that you're seeing or the, what, you know, what you have to read between the lines is that, you know, the regulators are realizing that many of the things that you know some people on the buy side had been pointing out over the last several years that the le- inhibiting the level of bank risk taking to the extent that we did you know can really cause large liquidity problems under stress and i think we've seen that and i think regulators are acknowledging that so the the question really over the next <clears throat> over the short term and then the medium term is going to be you know how do they find you know where do we end up how do they find that happy medium right where where the regulatory framework is maintaining the right controls around system, systemic risk, but also allowing banks to intermediate financial markets in a meaningful way and take risk. So we obviously saw this extraordinary explosion in volatility. It's come down quite a bit. Um, you know, the VIX had gone above 80 uh, as of this most recent Friday. By, I get, by the way, I guess this is the point of the show where I remind people what date we're recording this on, just in <laughs> case the world has changed since... Uh, Are you uh, going to do the hour too, Joe? Yeah, it is. Uh, right now it is uh, 9 a.m. East Coast <laughs> time on April 5th. So bear that in mind when you listen to this, because who knows what the world will look like by the time you're actually listening to this. But at the time we're recording this, uh, the VIX is below 50. And as you mentioned, the Fed has done multiple things, both in terms of the stepping into market standpoint and uh, regulatory tweaks and so forth, without necessarily predicting the future of what the market holds. Between all these washouts and moves, is there much, uh, you know, is it reasonable to think that like we've seen the worst, not necessarily of index levels or the economic crisis, but that the washout from a sort of pure volatility, illiquidity standpoint, we saw the worst of it. Or what kind of potential uh, triggers could there still be out there? Yeah, no, it's a great question. Uh, I think that within the, um, especially equity volatility and probably interest rates volatility markets in on the public market side, I think that's probably a fair guess is that the craziest of the uh, of the moves is past us. The reason being, all of the highly over leveraged, speculative, risky positioning in you know short tail risk on the hedge fund side, um, the, those folks blew up, and that positioning has been largely cleaned up. There's still you know some of it in, in deeper pockets, but generally speaking, uh, generally speaking, the worst of 
you know, pe people who were short a ton of variants or short a ton of VIX calls, uh, they, they've been liquidated. And so that the acceleration factor of that is gone. Uh, also on the on the fixed income side, you know, the Fed and, and global central banks again are being very aggressive in terms of trying to restore basic functionality of those of those markets. You've already seen the liquidation of many of like the leveraged mutual funds in the muni space and, and MBS space and so forth. So I think that the most disorderly market behavior on the public side yeah. is probably over. Um, the you know to your point, very hard to say about, you know, index levels and so forth. You know, this is going to be a, a very, this is a very real, very large fundamental economic shock, and it's likely to take quite a while to work through the system. And, you know, it would be easy to see scenarios where, you know, asset price levels are, are significantly lower even. Uh, but I think that the place where we've probably only begun to see you know, little inklings of the beginning is, is more on the private market side, right? So just think about um, private, you know, things that aren't mark to market and, you know, aren't, don't get unwound in a messy way on the first big leg down, right? So private credit, um, over leveraged private equity, um, assets that are, uh, you know, held probably at very inflated valuations and that are very sensitive to, you know, the performance of small cap businesses that, you know, are seeing their, you know, their revenues fall dramatically and their basic ability to, uh, to run their businesses, um, you know, potentially gone under quarantine, right? And right. I think that, you know, and it's not, it, this is not my wheelhouse very, very directly. And so I'm not going to, you know, make a bunch of specific predictions of any sort. But I think that if you were to look at places where the worst is, is probably not over and you'll see a lot of bodies start to float to the surface, I think that's probably over the next, you know, three to six months, that's probably the place to look. All right, uh, Ben Eifert, uh, really appreciate you rejoining us. As, as I mentioned, there were a lot of people uh, constantly asking for a, a sequel to your January episode in light of everything we've seen. And uh, so I think they'll be very excited to have uh, listened to your perspective now that much of what we talked about then uh, is really playing out. Hey guys, thanks for having me, it was a lot of fun. Thanks, thanks ben. ben, that was great. Great, as always. Uh, Tracy, I love talking to Ben because I feel like there's almost no one who does as good of a job taking some pretty arcane, difficult to wrap your head around concepts and coming pretty close uh, to putting them in English that even I can understand. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I definitely think sometimes you need to listen to these episodes a couple of times, but you definitely learn something from them. And I, to me, there are sort of two broad themes that stand out. One is that we do get these feedback loops in the market um, because of the way hedging and things like that work, where you can see moves to the downside or sometimes to the upside really exacerbated um, because of all these things that are sort of happening in the background between dealers and investors. And the second big theme is what Ben was talking about when it comes to de-risking the banks. Uh, risk never disappears, as we know. It always moves somewhere else. In this particular case, it's moved over to the buy side, to the hedge funds, some other investors. And I guess the question is, 
whether or not that was the right thing to do. As Ben pointed out, there are some downsides. Again, getting much bigger market moves than you might otherwise expect when banks still had the risk appetite or the ability to come in and sort of cushion the market. Um, But on the other hand, you have financial stability. So it's a really interesting question. And sorry, I'm going to keep going. No, yeah. But the other thing... uh, to think about right now is we have seen some talk from the U.S. about rolling back parts of Dodd-Frank, things like the Volcker rule, as they're trying to get banks to be more helpful to the wider economy. And I guess the question is whether we're now going to go too far when it comes to undoing all this post-financial crisis regulation. Yeah, I mean, it'll be really interesting to see uh, where they land ultimately. But I think like, but I think, you know, I feel very anxious about saying anything like, oh, Dodd-Frank vindicated or uh, the banks proved to be safe. Mm-hmm. It's like, I kind of want to wait a few months before I start <laughs> saying like, oh, it all worked because everything is just so uh, tense right now. But if you think about like, okay, what is it, the core I, purpose of a bank is most people know it, a place to sort of hold your money. It's good on some level that where we've seen the blowups so far. See, it seems to me it's good that on some level where we've seen the blowups on so far have not been that. Now, there's also the other factor, which is that this crisis really started as a sort of real economy shock or an exogenous shock. Mm. And it will be interesting, and I sort of uh, Ben alluded to it at the end, what happens to sort of, you know, at some point people just can't keep paying their bill. All right, I mean, we've already seen that. I mean, we saw right. it with April 1st. And rent and mortgage checks do because of the extraordinary sort of human toll and layoffs that we saw in March. What keeps happening to sort of assets that were presumed to be extremely safe as this drags on, as the health crisis continues, as the real economic crisis continues? At some point, it just sort of keeps eating deeper and deeper into assets that people thought were safe. And has been alluded to, and which I get, and, um, you know, our recent uh, interview with uh, Tom Barrick uh, discussed this and so forth. What happens in the world of sort of private credit, uh, private equity, other assets that are just sort of premised on the idea that you can take a lot, take on a lot of debt or any debt to own a very stable piece of the economy when the economy comes to a halt feels like a story that we have not yet seen the washout that we have seen in perhaps. We uh, in public uh, in sort of uh, publicly traded instruments. Absolutely, we should be careful about saying that the banks are completely in the clear. And yeah. as you point out, on the safe asset side, at at the same time, we have um, this question over what happens to those assets in what's really an unprecedented economic downturn. In many ways, uh, we are seeing the regulators start to ease back on those capital constraints. So banks are now allowed, for instance, not to hold as much money against things like U.S. Treasuries. The regulators are doing that to try to improve liquidity in the market. But again, the question is, if something were to happen in the U.S. Treasury market, would that then backfire and banks might actually suffer some losses? So big questions for the economy and the financial system. Yeah. Well, I think we have uh, many more episodes We're going to have episodes for years on this, so I think we're just getting started. 
Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, um, this has been one of those episodes, I guess. Uh, I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. And you should definitely follow our guest on Twitter, Ben Eifert. Really uh, puts out high value, high information stream. He's Ben with two N's, P Eifert. Ben Eifert. And you should follow our producer on Twitter, Laura Carlson. She's at Laura M. Carlson. Be sure to follow the Bloomberg head of podcasts, Francesca Levy, under the handle at Francesca Today. And check out all of our podcasts at Bloomberg under the handle at Podcasts. Thanks for listening.